most founders still do it though you know most of this stuff we're talking about i don't think we only whisper it to each other when we are we come to meet face to face and all that but other than that nobody will ever share it on their social media their twitter or whatever mm, wow yeah i mean that's a yeah that's exactly it it's all because we, we are taught to be part of a circle and uh, if you want to be known as a startup like you know by the very definition uh, a company that's um as a stereotypical image versus any other company but to be a startup you have to be part of this crew you got to be dressed like this you got to look like that you pitch like this you do your 10 slides like that you always talk to investors this way you know it's it's like if you go through a startup it's like you're going through this unofficial school to conform exactly there is a specific certain mold and that's quite interesting i mean we are the people that um we we rally around this chant uh, and we talk about we are i don't know square pegs in round holes we are the rebels we are all that but it's a very homogenic it's a very homogenic society out here i mean if you don't fit the bill if you don't wear the nice jeans and, uh, and the nice coat to match and you don't speak with the nice twang i mean then they're, they're never going to look at you you know i used and, to and treat this I... as as a joke i used to treat it as a joke because i would tell people hey i've got the startup look i even tell people hey i bought these pants and then i got this hat and then you know i got the top so so that when i got my shave uh, my beard looks like i'm a startup indian not a startup rebel or, or not a rebellion beard yeah. but a startup beard yeah. uh, i got these shoes because that's the kind of shoes i was doing it as a joke because i thought this is stereotypical but i i found that people, everyone was actually doing it to to confer to conform into the system to to almost like the, the more you conform you're going to raise your chances of to succeed and raise funding Ex- exactly but let me tell you something pj knowing you how you look unless there is a way you can magically add maybe a few inches to your height and do a couple of things to your body i mean you still even if you try to get the look you still not yet there my friend <laughs> thank you <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry but i'll tell you what i was in kigali the other day for the africa tech summit and do you know the way founders always swarm around these investors you know you see a white person and you think oh there's an investor so you all swarm around him there was this one of the largest vcs uh on the continent he was seated for like i think 6 hours talking to this very slender and very tall guy with a very nice beard you know with very tight jeans and a jacket and all that and i remember passing by them and thinking hmm that founder looks like the kind of founder an investor will talk to 6 hours you know the rest of us you just go say hi hi they smile politely and they they just want to shoo you away you know but this founder this very large investor sat with this founder for 6 hours and i said that is the look vijay that is the look there is a certain height you have to be a number of feet tall and you have to you you, you know what vijay you know what i'm talking about you know it when you see it well uh, i just want to let everyone know sophie has mentioned that i have fallen short <laughs> of the of the startup look because i'm too short and i don't have hair and apparently i don't meet sophie's requirements <laughs> if i were a vc if i were a vc you wouldn't meet those requirements if i were a vc trying to play the vc game as it's being played currently anyway yes i will be ignored absolutely <laughs> sorry for that buddy mm. so yeah so tell me what's happening i mean first of all let's 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 go in the back let's go to the beginning how did sophie yes. become an entrepreneur and how did sophie get into hr uh, business okay so basically i think um i've worked in the corporate sector for i think i'd worked in there for like around 7 8 years uh among my last two jobs i worked for among the leading platforms in uh, job advertising in the region uh, i worked there for 2 years in retention management uh from there when i was doing my mba i did uh, i had to do projects for actual companies 
uh, and I did, I chose to work with HR companies to help them maybe in structuring themselves better. Uh, I think it's during that time that I noticed that I became all too aware of the HR gaps in the in the market. Uh, there's so much there's so much activity in the HR space, and there are way too many players. And most of the time, we overlook, and we feel like that's a, a sector that's already handled; it's taken care of. But once you get in there, you discover there's a lot that would work better. So anyway, um, after I draw, after I left my job at uh, Airtel in. Uh, 2014 September, uh, I decided to set up uh, a small uh, company. It was uh, a training platform. Uh, I, I remember one of the challenges I had myself was for a long time, I couldn't get someone to just sit in the office and pick calls and talk to customers while I was out there trying to create new business. So I, I think I was surprised. I mean, we have like millions of people who are always looking for work in this in the in this country. There's so much joblessness. How can't I get someone? I had to work within my networks, and then our needs with the needs of the people that they brought me wouldn't just align, and it just took so much time. Whenever I tried to work with a job board, like I went back to my previous employer and tried to advertise there, I just received way too many applications. I didn't know what to do with them. So I think it's at that point that I sat down and realized, okay, I think especially for um, small, smaller, small organizations, uh, they need a better solutions in terms of uh, helping them get the right, sorry, quality of candidates in an efficient and cost-effective manner. So yeah, that's how I got into entrepreneurship and uh, all that. So we we built. At that time, it was Job Seekers. We built Job Seekers in 2016 and launched. And um, I think from the get-go, having just gone through my MBA and uh, some of my former professors were my mentors, everything had to really make a lot of business sense. From the word go, you have to identify. So how are we going to make money? How are we going to be profitable? I don't think my, my professors knew anything about venture capital at the time. So I remember any time I tried to talk about that, it would just get them confused. Uh, I think the way okay. they were looking at it, they were looking at we having to structure a business that's profitable enough and uh, attractive enough to investors, in this case now banks, to finance. And I think that's how we worked ourselves around 2016. I think in 2016, I operated outside the startup ecosystem in its structural form as composed. So I don't know. I think it was around 2017 uh, is when I got exposed to the whole entire startup world and uh, this new form of capital and how people were playing to to get this new form of capital. When was the first time? Okay, this is an interesting yes. question. You got you got to really dig deep now. When was the first time you realized you had to play the game in order to fit in? When was that moment? Hmm. Um, okay. I had, uh, in 2016, towards the end of 2016, uh, a friend of mine who also happens to be one of my key advisors uh, told me that he's going for this startup event in Kigali. So I, I also went along with him. It's, it, it was Seedsters, the Seedsters competition. Uh, I think uh, then. Um, Somehow, I, I think, courtesy of getting into their emailing list or something, I got an invite in 2017 to apply for the 2017 Seed Star competition. And I applied casually and uh, actually was shortlisted among the 10 Nairobi startups to feature Seed Stars. I think at the end of Seed Stars, that competition was the first time I realized I had to play the game. So there was a lot of interesting stuff that happened during that competition. To be honest with you and myself, I was I was the 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 ours was the performance that was poorest, you know. And I knew that immediately after I had pitched, I knew it was the worst performance because the judges only one judge asked me one question. I was the last startup to pitch at around seven p.m. I don't know if they were tired or something, but. I was just asked one question and uh, they said, okay, that's fine. Uh, they went into the judging room. They they judged. They came up with the, this white lady as the one who had won the competition. 
which took all of us aback because uh, there were two other performances that were really good on the stage. But one of those two really good performances also had a very interesting story around it. So the same friend, the same advisor I tell you, the one who took me to Kidsters, Rwanda, was also in this, uh, also came to see me pitch for the 2017 competition. So he, he knows the ecosystem, he knows everyone and everything that happened. So he's the one who was telling me about uh, this particular startup that I'm telling you was really interesting. So this startup had won the, I think it's called the Halt Prize in the US. Uh, they won a million dollars. Uh, <laughs> I remember my friend telling me, these guys are always pitching and these guys are always winning. And these guys never settled down to actually build a business. They, they never settled down to put up an office or to do anything. And I remember my friend telling me, anyway, the amount they keep saying they've raised whenever they go to pitch for a, any subsequent competition, the amount they've raised keeps varying. Sometimes it's $1 million, sometimes it's $10 million. Sometimes they say their revenue for the past one year has been $10 million, or since they started has been $10 million. Sometimes they say it's $1 million Kenya shillings. I remember us laughing about it. But I'll tell you, Vijay, so we laughed about it. And that startup, just this year, I saw them among the list that has just been accepted to the Google launch fund. So you see, we sit down and laugh at others and figure, oh, so what, what, are they lying? Are they, you know, what are they saying? But they know how to play the game and it's been working so well for them. Yeah. In fact, in my experience, I've seen some companies uh, pitching for the yeah. sake of pitching because they exist only when they're pitching. So the business <laughs> exists as long as they're pitching. If they don't pitch, the business shuts down. They, they so don't have an office or anything. Exactly. So in order to survive, mm. they pitch. Mm. The pitching is the business, not the business <laughs> itself. The pitching is the business. That is so true. That That is really, really true. And you know, they get a lot of media exposure. And when people talk about startups in Africa, they're actually talking about these guys, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. They, they, mm. Uh, similar stories here. Uh, we see typical companies, they're always either always winning, yeah. they seem to be okay, they seem to be doing yeah. fine. Why are they pitching? Why why are they asking for even more? Aren't there other companies who need it? And, and they keep winning and we find out they're doing just fine and and then boom, shut they, it shuts down in no time because something happens somewhere, somewhere and it's gone. Uh, let me and tell you, what is happening? Uh, so these businesses it, uh, exist. Yeah, for yes, the and, and, and let me tell you, after they shut down, you talk about shutdown, you'll see them next year still pitching after the shutdown. Like one of the co-founders or someone still walks around and talks about the business like it's alive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, but that's the ecosystem. So tell us uh, about your current company. How did yes. that start and what's it called? Um, maybe a little bit about that. Okay, so basically, employ. It's actually it's it's still job seekers. It's only we had to rebrand towards the end of last year to reflect more of uh, the two sides of the job marketplace that we're trying to whose needs we are trying to meet. Right, uh, employ is a French word for jobs. Also, uh, pronounced in English, it uh, it sounds like hire. So we figured it's it's a perfect name to work with as opposed to job seekers that only used to speak to people who are looking for work and not people who are looking for employment. So basically, like um, I said, uh, started in 2016, uh, turned into more of a serious business around 2017 thereabout. Uh, the whole concept of our platform is we felt like uh, small organizations who are, have a massive opportunity for jobs, uh, they lack the right tools when it comes to sourcing for, for staff, especially qualified staff. Uh, the challenges they face are a multitude, but some of them have to do with budget. Some of them, job seekers also really don't like working for them so much because they, they, they come off sometimes as unprofessional because of lack of systems and all that. So most of the time uh, you find, yes, there may be a lot of players in the market, but you find they serve larger, more or better established organizations. So we came up with the concept of employee that will help uh, SMEs actually 
handle their entire recruitment function at one single stop, you know, from uh, the sourcing to the hire and actually the post-hire management. Uh, at the same time, we also provide uh, people who are looking for work with the right placement tools, especially mid-level professionals, uh, in terms of identifying opportunities and getting into the, uh, the SME space for those who are willing. So basically, that's what we do. We are working with a delicate mix of technology and uh, expert uh, services, face-to-face -face services, because we realize that in as much as technology helps helps you scale services to a wider audience, there are services that really need personalization, and uh, that's why we came up with this mixed model. Okay, all right. Yeah. So um, tell us about that industry. What has been, you know, building the startup, getting it this far? What has been the biggest challenge and the biggest frustration you can really share with us uh, from your personal experience, but also from a Kenyan ecosystem perspective as well? Hmm. The biggest challenge, I guess the biggest challenge is just access to capital, you know, fundraising, uh, as we as we as we call it, I mean uh, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time, a lot of willpower, a lot of strength, huh? because I think for us black founders or the non-traditional profile of founders, we 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 have to really put in a lot, maybe ten times more, to achieve what someone else would ju would just have done with one trial. We don't have the networks when it comes to it. They say VC is a highly network-based kind of. Uh, 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 industry and uh, the networks start maybe abroad from when you are at school because they say around 40-50% of VCs currently went to either Harvard or uh, Stanford, okay? So it starts with you having the right networks from abroad which we do not have. Um, what else? So I think that has been the biggest challenge. I mean, everything else, it's, it's business. I mean, uh, if you are in business, then uh, you're supposed to develop the savvy. Your, 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 your job is to come up with solutions. So I don't think the others can really be seen as problems because you really have to figure out a solution. The only one I think for me has been really hard to, to figure out easy solutions too is uh, the fundraising part. Okay, uh, let's talk about the fundraising part, which is your biggest challenge. What are the biases mm -hmm. that you notice? And from here and even South Africa, even worldwide, there is mm -hmm. a preference of people who tend to get the funding over everyone else, no matter where they go. And mm -hmm. we see it in Kenya. There's always uh, talks uh, from a black founder's perspective. You can't succeed unless you have an expat uh, white founder on your team. Um, otherwise, you're not going to raise any money. If you If you don't do it, uh, the money goes to another expert founder who will create his own company and beat you from fundraising alone. The question that people are asking, is this fair? I mean, of course, if people have more access to capital, they're the ones who are going to succeed. But is it fair to the local ecosystem when <clears throat> international companies with international founders are benefiting and not the Kenyan local um, economy? Yeah, so, yeah, that's a very good question, Vijay. I mean, um, <clears throat> how how do we... Our challenges are twofold. I mean, other than uh, the outright bias, you know, uh, the, the other than the outright bias, there are also other systemic, you know, cultural and all that challenges that come into play. I was just reading an article a few minutes ago where this black founder, and these challenges also exist in the U.S., okay? They exist everywhere else. I, all, I only feel like other ecosystems are starting to talk about it, and they are starting to figure out alternatives, while uh, Africans and Kenyans, we are still stuck in the ways of that are problematic. So like I was saying, I was reading just here, this black founder says, one of the challenges that we face is that uh, the VCs don't understand the local ecosystem problems from our perspective. I mean, if you are to talk about um, the, this particular challenge happens in Soweto, or this particular challenge, you as VJ 
have been privy to ever since you were born and you, you've witnessed it and you see your friends, your moms, <clears throat> they have these challenges. If the VC does not have solid data that can convince him about that, eh, then they're not going to be interested. You know, they don't see the opportunity in there. But um, that's the same situation we face here. Sometimes uh, I keep telling people like, you, 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 can't, you can't quantify how large joblessness or joblessness solutions, uh, lack of job-supporting job, job solutions, you can't quantify how large that problem is. But if I had data backing this assertion, let's say from the ILO or from any other reputable body, then I can use this argument to back me up and a VC would listen. But we don't have data in Africa also sometimes. So sometimes you're just talking about things that you know from your gut feeling or you can scrape a few pieces, points and pieces here, but they're not convincing enough. So yes, the problem of perspective is, is really huge. They have a very different perspective of life that, that, than we do here. Um, the, the expert founders like themselves who come here and do some summer internship or whatever it is that those guys do here over a, a couple of weeks and months, and then they, they say, oh, we think we can solve this problem in Africa. What backs them up is that they speak from the very same perspective of these VCs. They use the very same language to describe these problems. So they, they are way more relatable and believable. Uh, now, another challenge, I feel like also the, the way the way we, okay, so we don't have a culture of uh, co-foundership out here. You remember we were with you in DC and a friend was telling us them back in Nigeria, they actually buy people to be co-founders, you know. We don't have that culture here. You can't really convince someone to leave their job after going to school for so long. And then you're telling them to get into this industry uh, I don't know you guys are going to raise money. I, I, what, what the hell is that? You know, it took my husband a lot of time to start actually believing any of this stuff that I'm talking about. When I used to tell him about VC, he used to ask, you mean somebody just comes and gives you money? It's not part of our culture, part of our life. So the same way it's very hard to convince uh, friends to believe what you're talking about. It's also hard to convince them to join you into this journey and convince them that you can build this very large organization out of it, okay? People still have that, I, I need to look for a job mentality with a, a large bank, a large organization to impress uh, my folks back at home and stuff like that. So th now that's another challenge that comes in. All our accelerators, most of, them, nearly all of the VCs, they will say, oh, you need to, the team composition needs to be destructured, you know? So we are talking about two or three or more co-founders and uh, they need to have this type of education, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that's also some of the other challenges. But you see, like these two challenges I'm talking about, they are not born out of outright bias, you know. But then we also have challenges that are just out of outright bias, you know. Someone feels like, I don't know, maybe you will not. I have had someone who actually told me, Come on, let's face it. Whites execute better. They used that statement. And I just wanted to, I don't know. I, I, PJ, I'm still angry about that particular statement. You know, come on, let's face it. Whites execute better. You know, what made me so, so angry is the balance of power on that table between me and this VC. You know, he felt like he could tell me that to my face and there's nothing I could do to him. There's nowhere I'd take him. I mean, oh. Anyway, so yeah. Sorry for getting emotional. I need that emotion because <laughs> we, we need to go deeper into this uh, problem. Yeah. I feel, I feel your pain because that is a reality. That is a lived experience yeah. we all uh, go through. And this is why... Mm. Research shows why nearly 90% of the money goes to a one particular uh, section of the population of the world mm -hmm. because they're the ones who have the money in the first place and they're mm. obviously going to invest in themselves. It's obvious yeah. that they're going to choose people who look like them because they understand their own culture. They, exactly. If they don't understand the culture of how money is used here, mm -hmm. they're not going to trust your money, which is also why expect founders mm -hmm. do better fundraising in mm. Kenya and South Africa mm. Mm. and other, other parts of the world. This is why. Mm. Mm. And if, 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 and maybe you can add on, add on to that, uh, if our local 
investors the the investors that look like us who mm-hmm. don't invest in mm-hmm. because they are also scared of mm-hmm. the failures of their mm-hmm. own founders of their own people they would still put their money in white founders that also doesn't help it it it, it does not it does not um I mean, uh, that that's exactly the argument that everybody has used. You know, I mean, it's their money. They, they decide how it's gonna get spent. They 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 decide uh, where they want to invest, where they feel comfortable, where they feel the investment will be secured, and all that. Eh? But uh, it's that blanket bias that, that that has a problem. I know VCs most of the time, or sometimes they would invest in you after maybe one or two. Two meetings sometimes, if you are the right kind of founder and all that. Uh, if they want to play in this market, uh, I feel like uh, either, either if they, of course, they're not going to regulate themselves, but maybe someone else has to do it and have people. Well, it's a risky market, right? We're talking about a risky market, but in the sense of fairness and also balancing fairness and balancing their own interests securing their interests they need to put more skin in the game you know don't just look at a deck and say oh yeah i think this one i'm going to invest in without uh, like a proper understanding of uh, what they can do beyond what they've written down uh, in very neat fonts and images <clears throat> so i think uh, their 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 concerns are valid but i feel like I feel like they're being lazy. Let, let me just be blunt, okay? I feel like they're being lazy. <clears throat> so you, you took us through a very negative experience where a VC told you in your face it's yeah. that whites execute better. Yeah. Um, yes, it also disheartens me because it feels like many times if I'm getting rejected, it's also because of that because they, may think they make the assumption even before they get to know you and your business. It could be. Exactly. It could be the case. So yeah. how have you handled that? And have you tried to make this public? Have you tried to raise this in, in, in some some way, like how Black Lives Matter is talking about racial injustice in that respect? Is there an equivalent Black Lives Matter for venture capital? Is there something like this that we should be doing <clears throat> to get people to understand the disparity? Oh, man, PJ, that, this is the first time I'm actually having a conversation with a founder who said, hey, you know what, let's let's talk about this. You know, uh, most of the time, I'm in a lot of groups, WhatsApp groups with founders. And um, personally, uh, I never try to bring this up. Uh, I'm, I'm usually not one of those very active members in WhatsApp groups, but I will see someone bring it up. And uh, maybe you are like 50 founders or so, or so, but nobody ever talks about it. Nobody ever talks about it. I don't think, I don't think there's a solution to that. I've, I've spoken to a couple of advisors about it. Um, I remember telling Chica last year, Chica, I feel like I live with cancer, you know. Uh, I've, I've, talking to, I've spoken to founders on a one, one-on-one basis where they would actually really agree and also air their own grievances in line with mine. But publicly, we, we don't do this stuff. We don't do it. And uh, that's what I, I feel like we are failing in that, in that aspect. I think with all the WhatsApp groups and all the startup groups of, yeah. and all the accelerators and incubators, I mm. feel like there should be this for black founders or people of color founders to attend that teaches them about this, not the business, not how good your, 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 your scaling is and, and your monthly revenue rate. No, we can sit down and talk about the realities. Listen, buddy, you're a black guy. You're East Indian. This is who you are in this, in this notion. This is what you need to learn about building a business by being you. Yes, your revenue and traction is very important. That's what's going to make your business succeed. But in order to bring you PR, we, t- we are going to teach you this part. Imagine an accelerator program that is a therapy, motivational, and founder, uh, founder-led founder uh, kind of accelerator program to teach people about the realities of building business. 
than just the technical stuff that we always get. How are they going to raise money? <laughs> I think if you look at how Black Lives Matter is 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 sort of promoting, yeah, it's not the best time to bring that notion in in the VC world, in the funding world, because this is racial justice. <clears throat> racial justice uh, goes beyond just equality. It also goes in, in terms of equality of access to money, equality of access to good first impressions that you afford other people. Okay, so I'll tell you what. I was I was very heartened, you know, when the Black, Black Lives Matter movement came up this year and um, people started, started talking about economic empowerment and uh, uh, racial injustices in, 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 in line with access to capital and all that. I really got excited and I was really in those talks, you know. I reached out to a lot of the VCs in the U.S., most of these guys that we just meet on Twitter and we would have these conversations and uh, there, there are so many people in the ecosystem who will say, if you are a black founder and you feel frustrated, please get in touch with talk. I've spoken to a lot of people. Only at one point you realize this conversation was not for Africa. This conversation was for the US, okay? So you will talk to a lot of these VCs who say, I want to empower black founders, but then they will tell you, okay, we, we don't invest in Africa, which also makes sense because beyond the whole affirmative action thing, this is about making money. And it will make a lot of sense for them to say we've demarcated our region of operation to the United States for manage, easier management and all that. It made a lot of sense. But Vijay, did you ask yourself why this same cry was not picked up in Africa's Twitter? You know, all this conversation didn't surface in Africa's Twitter, did, did you notice that? Did you ask yourself why? I did ask myself why. And one of the things I realized is that, uh, that there's, there's some gatekeepers, you know. There's a few guys who got into the startup ecosystem maybe 10 years ago in Africa and all that. And they've managed to create a very cool niche for themselves uh, as an entry point by other investors from abroad, you know, accelerators, trying to do partnerships and a couple of things with the, the African ecosystem. They, they are talking to this group of guys. Maybe they are 10, maybe they are 3, I don't know. So, you see, these guys actually already benefit from the ecosystem as is. They, 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 they really wouldn't get into... They know, about, they know how to speak the language if they are called upon to talk about the language. They, they, they don't know these problems you're talking about. I realized as long as they are the industry leaders, I, I see them. The Kenyan ones have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers and all that. But I know these people, if if they, they, they're already secure, then these cries we're just talking about, they really won't touch on them. Okay, so this now leads us to the juiciest part of our, of our discussion. Yeah. Okay, we are entering the no spin zone you're going to be like honest as possible because okay. of this frustration because of this energy you came out with a very popular medium post okay okay the one yeah. where you ask the question or at least you make a statement the reflections of an african founder that yes. was the the title it's it's emotional it says a lot Tell yeah. me what what finally led you to make a public statement like this. What was that straw that broke the camel's back, as we say? Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I stopped getting scared, you know. I mean, I've been fundraising. I've been in a constant fundraising mode since 2018, uh, I've raised some money from that, uh, but it's 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 been frustrating, you know. And uh, I think I just got tired of it. I, I just got tired of it. And I, I I remember I I wrote that article and I think I posted it around three days later or a week later because I told myself I want to be sure it's it's not an emotional decision, you know. And uh, after I wrote it, I, I reflected, I realized the only thing that I felt like would have stopped me because there was no lie, absolutely no lie from what I was writing from my perspective 
The only reason why I would want to do a tech two is because I'm feeling like, oh, am I closing my own prospects for the future? Uh, what, what what are people gonna think? You know, what are these ecosystem players gonna? What are they gonna say? You know? And then I realized uh, uh, that's not what I've always stood for. That's not what my grandfather brought me up uh, to believe. I mean, I shouldn't not write a piece of information just because I fear the consequences, you know, uh, unjust consequences. So I said, yeah, whatever, I'm going to post it anyway. And what did you think the consequences could be? Well, I felt like maybe they are going to share it in uh, some, it's going to go around in a WhatsApp group and some of the VCs that I've spoken to and maybe, you know, uh, or maybe I'll come off as weak. I think that was the main consequence that I feared. I feared that I'll come off as weak or as a loser or as a whiner, you know, I've failed to learn how to play the game, blah, blah, blah. But I knew deep down that was not the reason for it, man. This has been a very deep and personal issue for me. And um, however somebody else picks it up is none of my business. I was just going to write it. You know, you know why we need all need to write these articles, Vite? The the startup industry is very elite. You know, it's highly elite. And NGOs, our governments, our schools, everybody sells us entrepreneurship as you see this pathway to success that's open to everyone. There's a lot of kids I see on these streets, uh, a lot of kids that admire me and they say so on Facebook or social media and they say, oh, I want to be like you and all that. And they think it's easy, you know. They, they see you go abroad and uh, talk to wise people and all that and they think it's all glamorous and nice. I feel like it's a high time we started like telling guys, folks, this is the reality and this is not open to everyone. And you you may struggle for so long and you still may not make it. That is uh, very profound. In fact, one of the points that you made that also, I, I would say, struck me is what we started discussing in this discussion where try and speak less VC and be more honest, you know, try mm-hmm. and just do your business instead of trying to conform into this club. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's the other one that, uh, that, mm-hmm. that stood out. Okay, mm-hmm. let me read that. And I think mm. that's very important for everyone. Mm. There's number five, mm. where you put up a picture from, I think, one of your sales teams, isn't it? That Who was sent you a inter- card? Yes. An intern. Now, now, there is a fundamental importance of doing what you're doing instead of pandering to people who expect you to behave the way they want it. Yeah. When you are being honest and actually operating, you have an intern who wrote your letter, wonderful words, showing that you have actual business impact when you just do your business honestly based on what the customers want and based Mm -hmm. on what the team uh, expect. Just Mm -hmm. the people on the ground. If you do that part, you are operating successfully without Mm -hmm. pandering to anyone. And I think that's a very powerful. Maybe you can tell us more about number five. Like, Tell us what's happening on the ground, how people see you, how you treat them, how they feel, you know. What, what feedback have you received that shows mm-hmm. I am doing what I should be doing all along? Just be yourself. Uh, uh, some images like the, the card I posted, I think I have a lot of those. Uh, they, they, they always say uh, I've really been a good mentor and coach for them. I remember one time I was wondering why do they say that? Because uh, I'm also extremely tough on people when it comes to them delivering on what they're supposed to do. In fact, this year was actually really touched. You know, on Mother's Day, <laughs> on Mother's Day, I actually knew it was Mother's Day when I went to visit a friend and I found she was all dressed up and she said that the husband and the kids want to do something for her because it's Mother's Day. And I remember thinking, oh my God, my husband and kids didn't even remember it was Mother's Day. So I think it, I just went throughout the whole day thinking about that. But then at the end of the day, I went to our social media pages and I found that the team had posted on social media 
pictures of us. I think we were having a team meeting and they said, thank you for being the best. I, I think they said mother or something for this team. Uh, you push us so hard to achieve our potential and blah, blah, blah. It was very, very emotional for me. And I felt like if only I had gone to social media early, I would have been so happy that entire day. But anyway, uh, I think in terms of being, uh, in, in fact, just our, our, our survival uh, during this COVID-19 period has showed us that we are doing the right thing. I think other than businesses that are in the essential services landscape, like healthcare, uh, I think there's nobody who can talk about having achieving maybe a 50, 60% month-on-month growth on revenues. Uh, and we've been proud to be able to talk about that. Uh, I remember in March, I got into a panic. When COVID was now raging full-blown, I got into a panic. I was smack in the middle of fundraising. I'd already started getting some very serious conversations at that time. Uh, in as much as they were all drawn out and all that, at, at least they were picking up steam. That's around the same time someone told me, let's face it, whites execute better. But uh, I had also hired a whole telesales team, you know. I didn't know how, what, what was I going to do? We've already put so much money into, we had moved offices into a larger office. I didn't know what we were going to do. Our runway, which we were seeing running out in three, four months, I, I, I honestly didn't, didn't know what we were going to do. So as we were breaking up, we, we had to, to take a break and go work from home. I just, I didn't feel like we were going to come back to this office. I remember that day leaving the office and feeling so emotional. You know, I've, I've, I've only known this office a couple of months, but I feel so attached to it and all that. But anyway, uh, the way we managed to survive uh, March and then April, and then in April we started making revenues. And in March and June, the revenues just kept growing. I remember in uh, in April, one of the team members came and told me, hey, uh, I want a pay cut. One of the really senior team members, I said, you want a pay cut? Yeah, so how much do you want us to pay you? She said, I'll take 50% pay cut. So I asked her, so are you going to work part-time? She said, no, no, I'm going to work full-time. I said, wow, that's awesome. I'm, I'm also going to take a pay cut. So we, we took some forms, me and how we signed them immediately, and we took a 50% pay cut. So, and then 10 minutes later, the head of sales walked in at the time and they told him, hey, you know what, uh, so-and-so and I are taking a pay cut. Uh, what do you think? He said, you know what, I'm also going to take a pay cut. So he took the form and signed the form. And then uh, the only person who was not in that day was our CTO. And he had so much work on his desk. You know, I, 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 did, I, I didn't even know how I'm going to talk to him about the whole pay cut. But then I said, okay, I'm just going to give it a try. So the next day I gave him a call and he said, hey, uh, so, you know, the three of us have, have taken a pay cut. What do you think about it? You know, I wasn't even asking him whether he'll take a pay cut or not. I just asked, what do you think about it? He said, you know what? I think it's very important for me also to take a pay cut. Immediately signed the forms and just sent them over to HR. And I felt like, wow. I mean, we ended up extending our runway very significantly and the team just worked like 10 times harder. For us to figure out a whole re new revenue model, um, you know, it, it took a lot, a lot of energy and strength and commitment from, from everyone else. So I figured out on the ground, we are a very impressive team. We are, we are a very impressive team. And uh, whenever I feel like uh, we have any existential threats, I, I, I actually think about my team. I feel like, oh my God, these guys have put everything of theirs in this in this venture, you know. I, I, I don't wanna let them down. So I I think on the ground we're pretty we're pretty impressive. You know, that's a pretty impressive story. Most people are not surviving. I think wasn't it something like seventy percent of businesses were shutting down during yes. COVID nineteen? Yes. And somehow you managed it. I that that's that's a story people need to hear. That's actually should be the only reason an investor should say, you know what, I'm investing in this company. That should be the only story they should be hearing instead of the elite links and the who knows who network and who drives what car. It's this part right here. So my question is, 
why don't you make this particular aspect your pitch when you tell people this is why you must invest in math in me because i can do this in situations like this ah well so you know what happened in march we stopped fundraising we had to really cut it short because i needed to be honest you you know even if an investor came on long and gave me money what was i going to do with the money i wasn't gonna sink it in a sinking venture you know i needed to figure out because i think march was a very great lesson for me i had seen part of that employer behavior in 2017 when we were having our own elections and uh, i realized uh, the, i i had seen the fra- fra- fragility of the sme ecosystem and those are our main client client market the target market you know so i think this year that's also one thing i asked myself in march now do, do i really want to do this i mean any time there is um, economic shocks or anything eh, your target market just collapses with that uh, i was having conversations with a friend of mine so there is this very large business complex in nairobi very large and like all the smes reside there So a friend of mine also they have offices there and I remember asking them so how are guys at this building how how are the businesses now so he told me everybody has fired everyone you know so it's only the owners of these businesses who go to the office and now they are doing the work that their 10 member 20 member teams used to do so I remember finding it funny but uh, I think it was at that time that I realized that uh, as an organization we need to to have um well well we we needed to 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 broaden our focus in terms of what services we are offering these guys what really do they need to what service endures beyond these economic shocks so during that period of figuring this stuff out i didn't want to involve any investors and keep selling the same narrative we had in january you know keep talking like everything is still okay and i know i could bullshit my way around because most investors are not in this market that's why founders this this competition competition startups i don't know what to call them that's why they managed to play around this much because they feel like these investors these institutions do not have an intense knowledge of the market so as long as you just wrap their the, the right language they are going to buy it i didn't want to do that absolutely so what i had to do is that we had to go through a very rigorous process there's a lot of work that we had to do for us to figure out so is our business model sustainable and can we overcome any shocks uh economic shocks whether they are covid associated or elections associated uh, which is also another event that causes these shocks around here so around may around may now after we had uh, started seeing the curve going back up again in revenue so i i got out to investors again and uh, started having this conversation and i was talking about just what you've just asked me am i telling investors this narrative i feel like yes i've been telling it uh to the few investors because also honestly speaking there is not a lot of interest right now to invest uh the the entire activity that we had last year has really gone down significantly here so yeah i'm telling some of them uh but i can't say it's made anybody stop you know and ask who tell me more about that uh, i've not seen it i've not seen it do that so i don't know maybe maybe i need to find better language like you could say I just decide, uh, you know what I'm not looking for language anymore so whatever an investor will have to pick it in plain english on my deck <laughs> mm yeah so sophie what is the future of employ what what will you be now be doing now that the what the the, the glass bubble has shattered and yeah. now that you're real now you're truly becoming the sophie the founder the real founder from 2020 what is now going to happen in the next few years with yourself and the company wow i i feel like the future is exciting i mean there's so much market there's there's so much potential for us to explore and um, i feel like we've just discovered something that nobody else that, uh, knows and uh, we are, we are going to be in this uh, for the long haul 
Uh, I feel like there is a lot of potential for growth. Um, I'm, I'm, what am I doing right now? I'm not just sending out decks. Even in May, when I started fundraising, I must have only sent it out to around five or six investors, as opposed to previously when I usually just send it out there. I think what I'm doing is that I'm crafting a very, a, a, a very proper investment strategy, fundraising strategy for myself. You know, I'm not just approaching anyone. I'm looking for partners who feel, uh, who who are interested in solving the problem that we're solving. You know. Uh, so I feel like that is the future for us. So, yeah, I'm sure by towards the end of this year, there's, there, there'll be a lot of conversation points for, for, for us. Uh, we've just started this new journey, so we're going to see how it takes us. And uh, I think the other thing that I'm also doing, and that's why I'm very bold with my statements, um, I think I'm also looking for a different kind of investor, not the, the typical VC profile. As long as uh, there is 90% chance they're not even going to consider me from the word go. So there is also no point for me to spend a lot of time trying to present myself in a way that they may like. But I feel like the world has so much potential potential for, for, for partnership. And uh, I'm just going to figure out what those are and uh, try to work with the, such kinds of people. Fantastic. Now, does that include having to change your fundraising schedule, your strategy? Are you going to fundraise it differently? Are you going to be the Sophie when you pitch and not what they expect? Uh, yes. Yeah. I think the best Sophie there is is the actual Sophie, right? So I think for, for, for the pitching uh, and anything, I'm going to be more actual than anything else. Um. In terms of our strategy, yes, there's a lot of changes that we are looking at uh, how we are we are going around fundraising in the coming future. I mean, we may not target the really large VCs, the institutional investors. We may look, we may, if we think it's better to work with uh, maybe small organizations that like feel 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 a real need as we do in this space. I think we'll 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 opt to go with guys like that. I think it will it will it will be a, a lot less work as opposed to what we have to do, try to make someone else see potential if they're not really seeing 